Okay, good morning. Believe it or not, we've got a lot to cover, and we're only, we're only talking about four verses. But we're in Ephesians chapter 2 still, so feel free to turn there, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 4 through 7 this morning, just to kind of where we've come from. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we talked about last week, and we talked about what, what it looked like without Christ, what you and I look like without Him. We talked about how we're doomed. That was one of the D's that we looked at. We're doomed because of our disobedience, and we're disobedient because we are dead in sin. Right off the bat, this is what Paul says. In reality, we're hopeless to be able to fully conquer sin on our own because it's triple teaming us in this life, isn't it? Through the world, the influences of the world, Paul says, through Satan, and through our own flesh. All of these things are leading us down paths that we shouldn't go. And Paul just really made this picture clear. That's kind of what we talked about last week. Paul was painting this picture. And the picture was clear in the end that apart from Christ, we're without hope. We have no hope. But he was painting it this way for a reason. And that's where we get into today. This magnificent contrast between the first three verses of Ephesians 2 and the next four verses of Ephesians 2 is this wonderful contrast. And I I likened it to, guys, when you went and picked out your engagement ring, right? And they put that ring up against a black cloth and they shine this beautiful light and it just sparkled. That's what it is. On the backdrop of the sinfulness of mankind, the beauty of Christ sparkles. Today, you can see the title of my message is the two most beautiful, beautiful words in the Bible. And I think that these are them. I'm obviously not authoritative in saying that, um, but just in my view, in my eyes, this is what it is. You can see right off the bat, this is what these two words mean for you and me. For people that are dead in their trespasses and sins, verse 4, go ahead and look at it with me, but God. That's it. We're going to read the rest of this, but this is what, this is that transition that Paul makes. He's just finished talking about how rotten we are, how hopeless we are, but God. Your sin, brothers and sisters, your sin is not the end of the story. I'm just going to say that again because I feel like maybe some of you need to hear that. Your sin is not the end of the story because God enters in. So read with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness, towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, again, we see this is all wrapped up, not in our performance, not in our goodness, but in Christ Jesus himself. Lord, I cannot emphasize that enough for my brothers and sisters here. I cannot emphasize that enough for the lost who are here, who don't know you. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. We have salvation, forgiveness of sin, right standing before you. But it's not because of the good things that we have done or will do. It's because of Christ and his goodness. And so help us to grasp that 
and to live in light of that this morning, but also to see all of these wonderful blessings that are ours in him as well. And so we pray and ask these things in his name too. Amen. You guys ever heard the saying, God helps those who help themselves? Have you ever heard that that idea comes from the Bible? It doesn't, just so you know, so we're clear on that. The Bible never says God helps those who helps themselves. Many people think that it does, but it doesn't. And in fact, I would say that the Bible actually teaches the exact opposite of that. God helps the helpless. You see that? Not those who help themselves. God helps those who are helpless. But that's not actually even the whole story. Just listen. I'm going to divert here just quickly to Romans chapter 5, verse 10. I think I've got it in your notes there. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Right? So we're not helping ourselves there. While we were still enemies of God, He reconciled us together by the death of His Son. In reality, God not only helps those who are helpless, God helps His enemies. That's you and me. God helps. Now last week, I used the analogy of a leaky boat. And I just said that Every one of us is in a boat that's leaky and it's sinking. And without some kind of sovereign intervention, we're all going down with the ship. Let me just expand on that idea just a little bit this morning. It's true. Every one of us is in a leaky boat that will eventually destroy us. It's sinking. But it's not like we're just casually riding it down until we're covered in water, or even that we're fretfully wringing our hands about our imminent destruction If we want to go further with that analogy based on Romans 5.10, the whole time the ship is sinking, we're raising our fists at God in defiance. Even though we're headed for destruction, we got our fists up in rebellion towards God. We are lifeless. We are under God's righteous condemnation in opposition to Him and His truth without hope but God. Verse 4, but God. These two words just make all the difference here in this life for you today and in all of eternity. They make the difference. All the air, these last couple of weeks, even a little bit today so far, it's like we're, it's like the air is just getting sucked out of the room, out of our lungs in this revelation of who we really are, the reality of our sin. And now just with these two little words, it's like that all the air is just rushing right back into our lungs and giving life because of these beautiful words where once we were under God's condemnation and the weight of our own sin. Now there's, there's like this little light at the end of the tunnel, isn't there? There's a little bit of possibility of rescue. There's a little bit of some relief. There's a little bit of, of some hope here, but God. So Paul began this chapter just making absolutely certain that every one of us knows what we are without Christ. He's established that, and now that he's established that, he launches just headlong, both feet, into the good stuff. Now last week I said, you're not going to run out of here jumping and praising God for what we talk about, because we were talking about how we were doomed for destruction because of our sin. Today, we might run out of here praising God, because Paul just writes gets right into the good stuff. But we we can't have one without the other. I don't know if you remember, uh, this is probably a year or more ago, uh, Jason was talking with the kids and he, and he brought up this idea of vinegar and ketchup. 
You guys remember that, kids? You remember that? So we talked about ketchup, and all the kids, everybody loves ketchup, right? Well, what's the main ingredient in ketchup? Vinegar. Vinegar is not fun on its own. Some of you guys drink that apple cider vinegar as like a tonic every day, and you're nuts. <laughs> that stuff is gross by itself. But you mix it in with some sugar and some other things, and you get, and tomatoes, and you get ketchup. And we love ketchup, but you can't have one without the other. But I want to, I want to be clear. God's character, his, he's just, he's perfect, he's holy. He is all of those things without our sin to contrast against it. Right, don't get me wrong. He's, he stands alone on those things. He will always, has been, and he will always be that way, regardless of humankind, forever and ever. But the stark contrast between our sin and the darkness of our hearts with the beauty of what God is about to, to show us through the, the Apostle Paul, the contrast between these things is just so evident here. And it helps, I think, I hope, it helps us see ourselves for who we really are, both apart from Christ and in Christ. And I think it should help us see God for who he really is Two, just look, look at the, look at verses four through seven and look at some of these words that Paul uses to describe God's character. Verse four, his, his great mercy. Also in verse four, his love, great love. So rich in mercy, great love. Verse five, grace, you have been saved. Verse seven, immeasurable riches of kindness. Grace and kindness towards us. Aren't these characteristics that we want to have come out of ourselves? We want to be merciful. We want to show love. We want to show have grace. We want to show kindness to one another. These are who God is, brothers and sisters. So Paul transitions from the bad now to the beauty of who God is. And this is precisely the reason why Salvation takes hold of every person who believes God's character. Who God is is why we are saved. Paul upholds God's righteous wrath in these verses and his rich mercy right next to one another. Right here in these first few verses of Ephesians 2, he's talking about the wrath that is rightfully due sinners, but now the rich mercy and kindness that we have in Christ Jesus. Guys, you and me, our church, the Big C Church, we need to get a hold of this. We need to understand this about God. And it's this this very thing. God is completely right to dispense his wrath on rebellious sinners, while at the same time, he is completely right to show mercy. And it's his choice, not ours. Paul says God is rich in mercy here. He's overflowing with it. He's able to give it away without exhausting his reserves of it. Think about that. If every one of us needs mercy in our lives... God's storehouse of it doesn't deplete a little bit more and more as more people come to faith in him. He's eternal in it. It's immeasurable how much mercy he has for us. God has not and will not run out of mercy. And there's enough for you today. Morning by morning, new mercies I see, we just sang. Do we see those every morning? Man, he's rich 
in His mercy. And He desires, He longs to pour it out on everyone who believes. That's the word pictures that Paul is using here. It's like out of a pitcher into a glass. And guys, that glass is just overflowing. This is how God is showing His kindness and mercy and love towards sinners. In verse 5, Paul reminds us, he goes back to this idea that we're dead in our trespasses. He explained that in the first three verses. Um, I, I think he's just making us understand there's no escaping this reality. Yet lots of people spend their entire lives trying to escape this truth, trying to deny the fact that they are dead in their sin. Uh, I think churches are even full of well-meaning folks who think they can be free from their lost condition all by themselves, by church attendance, by church things. Man, that pursuit is hopeless. That pursuit is exhausting, and it's not the way that God says to find Christ. He says, you're dead in your sin, but God has never-ending mercies for you in Christ. In Christ. Notice how that's italicized on the screen. It's not in your goodness. It's not in your behavior. It's in Christ. His mercies are new and full and overflowing for you in His Son, Jesus. I love what the ESV study Bible says about this verse. It says, God's mercy on His helpless enemies flows from His own loving heart, not from anything they have done to deserve it. Flows from His own loving heart. If we are all dead in our trespasses and sin, it's God's sovereign grace alone that calls believers to repentance and faith. God's grace alone. Now, notice in verse 4, the reason for God's rich mercy being poured out on believers because of the great love with which He loved us. It's only because of God's great love. If you, if you haven't been able to tell in these few weeks, I'm aiming at something here. My goal is to put God's love for His children above anything you or I could ever do to affect it. You see what I'm saying? God's love is in a different category. Nothing that you do or do not do can affect God's love for you as His child. Okay, God's love is great. How does He demonstrate that? Romans 5.8. Listen as I read. But God shows or demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, God sent His Son to die in our place because of His love for us. But when the Bible says Christ died for you, it means that Christ died for you because of God's love for you. That's why He did it. If that's the only thing you hear today, man, that's enough for God to capture your heart with that truth. Christ died for you because of God's love for you. It's not just that Jesus died for you in the sense that he did something that you would have gotten around to sooner or later, though. I think there's a misunderstanding here. I just want to spend a minute just to clear up. If you guys, if you listen to the Christian radio station, Joy FM, you'll hear that they do this thing called... Um, You've got joyed or something like that, where you pay for the, the meal of the person behind you and in the drive through. You guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, something like, like that kind of a thing. And, and the idea is that when that person gets to the, the counter or to the window, then the employee says, Hey, your meal's been paid in full. 
you don't owe anything today. Of course, that would be, that's an awesome thing. But let me just ask you this question. If you go through a drive-thru and you order your food, what do you know you're going to have to do? You know you're going to have to pay for it. That's a simple idea here. You know you have to have the funds to cover what you are buying. I think too many people think this way when it comes to what we say when we say Christ died for you or when we say Jesus died for them. They hear this idea of, you know, I was going to get to that at some point. But it's cool if Jesus already did it. That's awesome. And that's, that's, that's people's attitude toward the sacrifice of Christ. They hear this, they believe, or at least they think this, this way because they live this way, that, well, they're, they're going to get around to paying God back for their sin, but Jesus got to it before they did. So while they appreciate the free pass, they haven't really embraced Jesus as their substitute. Justice requires payment. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is what? Death. If our sin earns death, how would we repay that to God on our own? You won't. You can't get around to paying God back in this life or in the next life or in somewhere in between. You're not going to just pay God back for your wrongdoings. You're not going to be able to pay your debt in full because you and I have been spending a lifetime ordering up God's wrath. Do you see what I'm saying? Every sin we commit is another order for God's wrath to come down on us. In fact, John 3.36 puts it this way. He says that the wrath of God remains on those who do not believe in the Son. We are, or we spend a lifetime ordering up God's wrath. How could we ever repay back, repay Him back for that? We can't. And when the tab comes due for that, when we stand before God, there's no way we'd be able to pay it back on our own. It's impossible. Stop trying. When the Bible says Christ died for you, it means that He died in your place. In your place. This is what the Bible refers to called propitiation. Okay, that's a Bible word. So we're not just using it to use it. I encourage you to look Romans 3. This is a familiar verse starting with verse 23. Paul actually uses this word, propitiation. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. That sounds familiar from Ephesians 2, doesn't it? We're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received how? By faith. To be received by faith. Your debt is paid in full. God's wrath is satisfied because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross. Because of His perfect death on the cross. He is our propitiation. Guys, don't be lulled into thinking that you're just going to get around to making things right with God. You can't. You won't get around to it. You can't do it even if you did get around to it. But God did. God did get around to it because He loves rebellious sinners because of Jesus' sacrifice. What's our part? We didn't have anything to do with that. What's the only part that Romans 3.25 says? It's to be received by faith. 
That's how we play a part in this, to be received by faith. And Paul, back in Ephesians 2, verse 5, Paul says then that believers are now made alive together with Christ. Finish this sentence for me, not out loud, just in your own mind. I feel most alive when blank. This question was asked on the internet, and so just a couple of their responses are like this. I feel most, some people say, I feel most alive when I'm out on a run or when I've just finished on a run. I don't know. I don't understand that. That's when I feel most dead is right after a run. Not alive at all. But those of you who run regularly, maybe that's true for you. Some people say when I, I feel most alive when someone is enthusiastic about something that I've done. Or when I'm traveling or seeing new things or places or when I'm playing with my kids or grandkids, that's when I feel most alive. When I feel loved unconditionally, when I'm closest, some, some people say when I'm closest to death is when I feel most alive. How many of you guys have ever been skydiving before? I know, I know Devin has. He just told me the other day, he went like how many times? Five times? Six times? Is that true? When you f- are closest to dying, you feel most alive? Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> you, you kiss the ground. So if you've, if you've been on a roller coaster, you probably feel a little bit of this too. How many of you guys like roller coasters? Oh, I thought more of you. Man, okay. Some of you are like, no, that's not happening. My son is like that. He hates roller coasters. It's the strangest thing. When you are on a roller coaster and you feel you're jerked around and you feel like, I mean, you have no control, right? You have no control. And that's the problem with some of it with people. But you have no way to, to do anything on your own there. And when you're just zipping through things and going other things and around and around, a lot of times you just feel alive because your adrenaline is going, isn't it? It's just pumping like crazy. And it's true. When you are in high pressure, tense situations, when you think your life may be ending, your adrenaline gets going and you tend to feel alive. All your senses are like, are heightened and it makes you feel different. It makes you feel what we would describe as alive. That's, that's the rush that we get, right? It's a rush from the roller coaster. It's a rush from skydiving. But are those things really life? Are those things really being alive? Is this the kind of thing, is that the kind of thing that Paul is talking about when he says that we've been made alive together with Christ? The rush of these things, or roller coaster or skydiving, it only lasts so long. That's not really what being alive is. I mean, even the non-threatening ones like running or playing with your grandkids or those sorts of things, the rush from that, that doesn't last very long either. So can it really be considered life if it only happens occasionally or if it only lasts for a little while? Is that really life? I, I would say that those things are actually the exceptions, not the rule. And yet that's what we, most of us, respond with when we want to finish that sentence. I feel most alive when... But Paul is referring to something that was once not true about a person suddenly actually becoming the norm. That's what Paul is saying when he talks about being alive. It's like this. You used to be dead. Now you're alive. Not just for a moment, not just for a season, 
Not just when you feel a certain way. Your life has completely changed. You once were dead, now you're alive. This is the new normal. This is how it's going to be from here on out. And if it wasn't true for you before, now it is. You really have life as his child. You really are alive. Fully alive. So I would propose to you today that no one really lives life to the fullest unless they've been saved by God's grace. You aren't really alive until you've been saved by God's grace. And that's why immediately after this, Paul says, by grace you have been saved. You're dead in your trespasses, but by grace you have been saved. Paul's contrasting the the deadness apart from Christ with new life that only comes in Christ. Being raised from the dead, giving new being given new life is all of grace. Paul says this in verse 5 and verse 8. And in both places, he uses the perfect tense. Perfect tense is used to indicate a completed or perfected action or condition. So verbs in this form usually have the words have or had plus that past participle there uh, here in our context being saved. So what does it say? You have been saved. Think about this. This is important. What does this mean? This shows us that the consequences of God's grace in salvation are unchanging and enduring. They're perfect. It means that you have been saved in the past tense, you are being saved in the present tense, and you will be saved in the future tense. That's what all of this, this perfect tense is getting at, Paul is here. All of these things, you have been saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our confidence in salvation has never been, it isn't now, and it never should be in anything of ourselves, but only in the finished and completed and perfect work of Christ. You were hopelessly lost in sin, but in Christ you've been made alive. You have been saved. And now Paul says you've been raised up. Look at verse 6. Paul says you've been raised up and seated in the heavenly places. Seated in the heavenlies. Now notice all three of these things, they use the same phrasing, with Christ. So it says you've been made alive with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You are seated with Christ. This is not just Rod Omis emphasizing these things. Paul, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing this for a reason. All of these things are in Christ. He is emphasizing our union with Christ. Believer, you've been united with Jesus Christ. Not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast, as Paul will say. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, we have also been raised to new life, made alive with him. And Paul uses a a special Greek word here. I won't try to pronounce it for you, but it's where we get the term or the word synchronize from in the English language. Synchronize. My wife and I use um, an app on our phone, Google Photos, and we take pictures on our phone and we share a folder of our kids' photos. So it's um, more than a little bit creepy, but it will recognize our kids' faces and it will put them in these, this folder 
that we share. And so if she takes pictures of picture of the kids, I can get on my phone and I can look at it. And so they sync up like that. We do the same thing with our calendar. So she puts something in her calendar and within seconds, I see it on my calendar. They're synced. They're synchronized. That's the same kind of thing that's happening with every believer and with Christ. We're synced with Christ. We've been made alive with him. We've been raised with him. We are now seated with him. You see the synchronization that's happening here? God is saying that these things have happened in Christ. What God did for him, he did at the same time for everyone who believes. This is a challenge sometimes to wrap our minds around, but it's true. In some incredible way that I can't fully explain, in God's plan, when Jesus got up out of the grave 2,000 years ago, Rod Omis got up out of the grave. Every believer got up out of the grave with him. I want us to turn to Colossians chapter 2. There's a parallel passage here that we just we can't talk about this without going to. Colossians chapter 2. Just one book over. Verses 12 through 14. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. For everyone who has been saved by grace through faith, all of your sins were forgiven by God at the cross. Your debt was set aside and canceled at the cross. You were made alive and you were raised with Christ when He was raised. If you don't feel alive today, and I hope you go back and reread this text from Colossians 2. And I hope you feel alive. Because you'll never be more alive than understanding that your sins against an eternal and holy God have been completely paid for, nailed to the cross by Jesus Christ. That should make us feel more alive than anything. More alive than money in the bank or feeling success at work or being completed by our family. This should make us as Christians more alive than anything. The sin that dooms us has already been nailed to the cross of Christ. The penalty of your sin has been forgiven and God no longer holds it against me and against you when we believe. Here's the crazy thing about this. In the mind of God, you are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. In God's understanding of who you are as his child, if you are his child, you are already seated with him in the heavenlies. Now, I don't think that this means that you're divine and perfect and sinless as Christ, but I think it absolutely means that we have his power to overcome sin in this life. I think it means that we are not bound by the darkness in this world of Satan and our own flesh. This does seem strange though, doesn't it? That we're already seated with him in the heavenlies. This has this feeling of, you may have heard it put this way, this feeling of this already but not yet kind of tension. You are, according to God, 
because of Christ, you are flawless and without sin. In his eyes, you are flawless and without sin. That has already happened. And yet, you know that you're not, you're not flawless yet. Your sin still crops up because of your old nature and the influence of the world and the influence of the evil one. It's an already not yet kind of attention that Paul is teaching here. It's true. In God's eyes, you are already seated with Christ. It's 100% true there. But we're still waiting the full completion of our salvation. That's yet to come. We're confident though, Philippians 2, we're confident that he who started the work in us is faithful to complete it. Paul says one more thing about all of this. And it's, I think, the reason why God would do such a thing. And this is in verse 7 of back in Ephesians chapter 2. All of this has been done by God for believers so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the reason why God would do such a thing. That's the reason how God can view you in the status of being seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We have been shown grace so that we might be a demonstration of his grace forever. You maybe have heard the term, we, every one of us are trophies of God's grace. As if he's got a trophy wall in heaven and every sinner that is saved by grace through faith is put on that wall for all to see for all of eternity in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Guys, this takes us, I think, full circle to the answer of the meaning of life question. Why were you created? What is your purpose? Why has God saved you for this? To glorify him and enjoy him forever, to be evidences of his grace forever. If you have been saved, you have been saved for God's purpose in that to be trophies of his grace forever. Believer, if you're, if you're hearing me today and you have been saved, you have put your faith in Christ alone, I just want you to understand and know for certain that you are united with Christ in order to enjoy every spiritual blessing in him for all of eternity. Every blessing that we have is yours for all of eternity. You were united and have been united with Christ so that God's immeasurable grace might be seen in you now. The two most beautiful words in the Bible, but God. There's so, so much wrapped up in these two words, isn't there? But Paul's just not done yet. He's not finished. We don't have time to get there today, but he's not done. Next week, we're going to talk about what believers do after we've seen God's grace that has been poured out on us without measure, these mercies that are new every morning, believer, now that we've seen that, how do we respond? What do we do? We're going to talk about that next week. And we're going to see how good works are wrapped up in salvation. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, should cause us, I think, to lose confidence in ourselves and treasure the risen Savior. That seems, that seems kind of backwards for somebody to say, right? That we should lose confidence in yourself, right? Because so much of our culture is pumping self-confidence and, um, you know, do it on your own and you don't need anybody else kind of a thing. Uh, that's not what, quite what the Bible teaches. 
what we've talked about in Ephesians 2 so far is really should cause us to lose confidence in ourselves and instead trust a risen Savior. John Piper puts it like this. He says that we have to either cherish or perish. He says, if we do not cherish him as a Savior, we don't really have him as Savior. And if we don't know and don't feel our need for a Savior, we will never cherish him as we ought to. Cherish or perish. Do you recognize your need for a Savior? The Apostle Paul and I have been trying to make it abundantly clear, brothers and sisters, there's no hope to be made right with God. There's no hope for eternity in heaven unless you have Christ, unless you have been united with Christ, as Paul says here. If every one of us is dead in our sin, then how many of us need a Savior? Every one of us. Every one of us need to be saved, but not every one of us admit our need. You've got family. You've got friends who they may say and admit, well, I've messed up. I've made mistakes. I've done things wrong. If you want to call that sin, okay, I have sinned. But that's not the same thing as acknowledging your sin and repenting of it. Uh, That's just acknowledging the human condition that's the problem for everybody. Yeah, I'm just like everybody else. Where's the admission in that? It takes more than that. We all need to admit our, our need for a Savior. So we're left with this choice today. Cherish the Savior or perish in your sin. There's really no other option according to Scripture. You cherish the Savior or you perish in your own sin. So my encouragement would be set your hope on Him, not in yourself. Who do you have more confidence in? Ask that question. Believer or not today, whether you know Christ or not, do you have more confidence in your own abilities or in the abilities of God? If you say you have more confidence in the abilities of God, then you have to understand you can have no confidence in your own abilities. Zero. We're going to close today's service just a little bit different. We're going to listen to a song. It's a song called But for Grace. I I hope and I pray as we sit and listen that the truth of this song, of these lyrics, will just wash over us and cause us to cherish Jesus Christ as a Savior and that we would turn away from our sin and not perish in it. If, If you this morning would like prayer or if you would like to come up and confess sin, or if you'd like to come up and, and just talk with, with, a, with me or with one of the other elders, I'd encourage you during this song to get up out of your seat and do that. You certainly don't have to. You can come and grab one of us afterwards. But I'd encourage you as we listen to let the Spirit move. And if He's moving you in that way, to act on it. Let's listen to this song. And when we're finished, we'll have a word of prayer and be dismissed. But for grace, where would I be? Just a ship lost on the ocean Like a bird with broken wings I'd have no place but for grace And but for grace could I be saved Can one dead by works be part?
God, were it not for your grace, none of us would be changed. We could go on roller coasters and jump out of airplanes and we could have some kind of a, a feeling, but we would never truly be alive were it not for your grace. And because of it, because of what you have given to believers, everyone who believes, Lord, now we have hope. Oh, we have hope. We have, we have joy in this life. We have the expectation of a eternal future with Christ. And so, Lord, we now don't see ourselves that way. We don't see ourselves seated in the heavenlies with him. But in your view, we are. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters who are in Christ this morning would be able to, to have a grip on that to see themselves in that way, not to to blow us up in arrogance, to puff out our chest in pride, but to humble us in knowing that we had no part of this. There is no way my efforts could ever have gained salvation from a perfect God were it not by grace through faith in Christ. And Lord, for those who don't really genuinely know you, Lord, whether they're just faking it or... Uh, just in constant, continued rebellion to it, Lord, our prayer would be, as those who have been saved by your grace, that you would just continue to chip away at the hardness of their hearts, overcome their own sin in order to make them alive with Christ. God, this is a work 
that only you can accomplish. And so we pray that you would work that out in the unbelievers in their midst today. You have done that for dead sinners already here. Those of you have transformed into the the kingdom of light, Lord. And so we're thankful and we give you thanks and praise. God, this is all for the praise of your glory. Help us today to cherish the Savior for how we ought to. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen.